You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Baby, back door. Baby, fall off. Sipping codeine because I got to kill a cow. Let me sit sideways in the big bins. Oh, you boys, they my brothers, they my friends. The game may be over, but they are just getting started. Raw and unfiltered, this is the OU Insider staff, and this is the Under the Visor postgame podcast. Welcome to another OU Insider Under the Visor Sooners postgame podcast. My name is Brandon Drum. I'm here with Parker Thune. And Oklahoma is off to a 2-0 start. Brent Venables is on a win streak. 2-0, baby. Uh, 33-3 over the Kent State Golden Flashes after quite possibly the worst first half of football I have ever seen. From the University of Oklahoma or up there. It's been, it Ooh, I don't I don't know about that, Brandon. It was bad. You remember Lawrence was, last year. Yeah, yeah, I remember Lawrence last year. Kansas looks pretty good though, by the way. Yeah, it's that's a team. They're gonna I think I, they'll go bowling this year. I do think they're gonna go bowling. Leopold, man, which is wild to say. But yeah, yeah you wild. know, I, I mentioned it a couple months ago. This looks like a team that uh, last year to this year has improved enough that they could win five games, which doesn't mean a whole lot in Lawrence, Kansas, but in comparison right. to what they've been accustomed to over the last 10, 15 years, that's a, that's a pretty significant uptick uh, in terms of your success as a program, but not to get sidetracked. We have an Oklahoma game to talk about. We do. We have an Oklahoma game. I'm literally watching the Carolina game here in my office at my desk while we podcast so i apologize to everybody <laughs> beforehand i'm kidding i won't i won't do that to y'all um but they are losing 77 cleveland is driving at this point to go up in the third quarter uh yeah man oklahoma look i i, I will say this even with the jekyll and hyde performance of yesterday the the end of the second quarter through the rest of the game was some of the best football I've seen Oklahoma play in a while. And I mean, I know everybody wants to look back at the the Texas game of last year and how well they played in the second half that, but defensively, they still weren't shutting down Texas. Texas was still scoring three points here, three points there. 
can anybody do the math here? Because Oklahoma has given up 16 total points in two games, which means they're averaging eight points a game in the first two ball games. When is the last time an Oklahoma team has been able to say that, that they have been that dominant? And not only that, not allowing 400 yards of total offense in back-to-back ball games. That's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Granted, the bar is pretty much on the floor. Right. And granted, right. those first two opponents <laughs> are not exactly formidable. Yeah. But, but even the unformidable I, ones back then were doing that to Oklahoma. Sure. But I agree with you, man. Like, I I didn't feel like I would be saying this at halftime last night, but I was legit encouraged by what I saw from this team. And even though it took them a while to get going and find their gear, once they did, they were dominant. And that was what they needed to be against a team like Kent State. And I will say this. You'd rather have a team that takes a while to – kick into fifth gear than a team that kicks into fifth gear way too soon and then peters out in the third and fourth quarters. So if that's if that's the type of football that you see from Oklahoma going forward, and I don't think that's going to become a hallmark by any means, the way that petering out in the third and fourth quarter did for Lincoln Riley's Oklahoma teams. But uh, assuming that doesn't become a hallmark going forward, uh, and assuming it's nothing more than something it, that rears its head every now and again, I think you have to be encouraged by that because I think that's a far lesser issue than the inverse would be where you play really well in the first half and then boom, you hit a wall after halftime. If you want to, if you're going to peak and you don't play 60 minutes of consistently elite level football, you'd rather peak in the second half. And Right. That's where the Sooners peaked. And it was bend but don't break defensively for much of that first half. But, man, they shut that thing down after halftime. And mm -hmm. I will say this. If there is one thing that you take away from last night, one thing over anything else, it's that the fact that Marvin Mims did not get the ball more than he did last season is a travesty because – He's one of the most dynamic playmakers in all of college football and certainly the most dynamic receiving weapon Oklahoma has when he gets the ball in space. And you saw that most conspicuously at the end of the first half when Oklahoma yeah. actually trailed three to nothing. We're in danger of going to the locker room scoreless. The Sooners dial up three straight pass plays specifically designed to go to Marvin Mims. 63 yards later, they're in the end zone. So... Yeah. That's that's the type of role in which you have to be deploying Marvin Mims. The mentality has to be we're going to force feed this guy the ball because he is our most dangerous weapon in the passing game, and we're going to treat him and deploy him as such. Yep. No, no. Hey, look, you're right, and that's something the fans have been screaming about and media for how long? Literally, how long has this been going on? What, three years now? Get the ball. After Marvin Mims' freshman year, in 2020, so I guess the last two seasons or last season and now a little bit of this year, it's been why isn't Marvin Mims getting the ball more? Like, what is the deal there? And last year, it was – it got to the point where Marvin Mims was almost transferring. If Lincoln Riley stays, Marvin Mims is gone. Like, gone. 
he's going to get in the transfer portal and be playing somewhere else. Luckily for Oklahoma, he's still a Sooner. And that is probably the biggest key to Oklahoma's offense right now outside of uh, just the versatility of the run game, I think. Uh, I I thought that, you know, I, I just, I just can't, I can't, I keep going back to the defense over and over. Danny Stutzman, Billy Bowman, uh, Reggie Grimes. My goodness, Reggie Grimes. Four sacks in two games. Four sacks in two games. That's unbelievable. Hey, you know, you know who who else had himself a night is Justin Broyles. Justin Broyles had himself a safety record in night. the absence yep. of Key Lawrence. Career high eleven tackles for Justin Broyles. So. That's a performance you can hang your hat on hey, going forward. Hate on him all you want, fans. He played really dang well yesterday. Really well. And but hey, guess what? Oklahoma is the tenth ranked tenth in scoring defense right now in two games in all of college football. They're forty sixth in yards a game at three oh five per game right now. And you have to take in consideration, number one, I guess who they played, but both of those programs that Oklahoma played that everybody also wants to kind of not give credit to a little bit because they're, you know, G5 programs are not the upper echelon. They were both, number one, they were both bowl teams last year. Number two, Kent State had one of the most prolific offenses in college football last season. And if you want to see why, all you have to do is look at a quarterback. That dude is... He... he He's an animal. Uh, you can't you can't say anything less than that guy can freaking ball. And he it, it almost felt like he had like oil or some sort of slime all over his jersey because when Colin Shalee got got to rolling and running around in the pocket, you could just hear the anxiety. And the Oklahoma fan base in the in the stands because you heard the 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 highs because it looked like he was gonna be sacked. And next thing you know, he slides out of everything, takes off 10, 15 yards down the field, finally runs out of bounds. He's a special player. He's not the greatest passer, but he makes plays when plays need to be made. Kent State's gonna win a lot of ball games. You're talking about the same Kent State, and I know we've said this before, they had Texas A&M on the ropes at the end of the third quarter last year in College Station. Now, after this past week where Texas A&M lost to Appalachian State and Notre Dame loses to, um, oh my gosh, I just went blank. Uh, oh my gosh, Notre Dame lost to uh, Georgia Georgia State, Marshall. right? Marshall, Marshall, they Marshall. lost to Marshall. Sorry, Georgia, Georgia State. Uh, Georgia Southern. Georgia Southern, no, but I mean, Georgia State played an uh, I think it was North Carolina's tough this week, if I remember correctly. Oh, yes. Yes, you're right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I got Nebraska lost to Georgia Southern. We'll get to that yeah. down the road. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's going to be a topic of conversation, folks, because of Scott Frost. But that's 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 later on the podcast. But, yeah, I mean, Kent State's a good ball team. They're a good team. I bet you they win seven, eight, nine games through their conference this year. Like, they're good. They're going to be a tough – tough ball team in their conference they're not oklahoma i'm not saying that this was like some great win or anything like that but it, it's something i mean oklahoma had to do 
Britt Venables came into the presser and he said, I was hoping that we had some sort of adversity. I was hoping that the strain was difficult and that Oklahoma had to bounce. We had to bounce back and they did so now not in the manner of which Oklahoma fans wanted to see, but it still happened. And you're going to have those type of ball games. Even Alabama struggles against inferior teams at times. I think we saw that last week, past Saturday. And that wasn't a shot at Texas, but they've done it at home against G5 programs before where they've struggled in the first half, then come out and light them up in the second half. Clemson did the same thing. under And that's something, again, Parker, you and I talked about standing in the end zone in the fourth quarter, how reminiscent of Clemson this team seems to be, where they don't just look dominating every week, but you look in the box score and you're like, yeah, they did. They dominated. But it just, it just doesn't look in the flow of the game. It never looks like that. You know what I mean? And it was very Clemson-esque. So, yeah, and... I think I think the age of offense, which I believe truly is behind us, I believe that age spanned from about 2008 to 2019. That was that was truly the age of offense in college football. Mm-hmm. But I think the numbers and the stats and the point totals that were all so inflated during that period have really skewed the perception as to what dominant football looks like because in years past i think prior to 2008 oklahoma beats kent state 33 to 3 everybody's sitting there like yeah you know what that's a pretty solid performance Mm -hmm. great win maybe there are a couple concerns that make themselves evident especially upon the rewatch but all in all can't complain these days you beat a team like kent state 33 to 3 and you got people pounding the table and wondering why it wasn't 66 to three. This game because was always really ball team. <laughs> yeah. Th- this, this game was well in hand from the time Dylan Gabriel hit Marvin Mims on that very first touchdown pass. So the outcome was never in doubt from that point forward. Once it became clear that Oklahoma had the momentum, they never surrendered it. And right. so I, at the end of the day, and I, let me use this expression correctly so that people don't riot over it in the YouTube comments. I couldn't care less how many points are on the board at the end of the day. I look at game control and we mentioned this in the pregame podcast on Friday as well. What I want to see more than anything else from Oklahoma is how they can control the pace and the flow and ultimately the outcome of a football game. And They didn't do it for 60 minutes against Kent State. As I mentioned, it took them a while to hit their stride. That's okay. That's going to happen every now and again. But at a certain point, at a certain point, you do have to hit your stride, right? And as long as that happens in timely enough fashion, you can't be too upset with it. You can nitpick it and you can say that Dylan Gabriel – missed a couple throws on those early drives that he probably wishes he had back. And you can look at the offensive line play and conclude that there's a long way to go in that regard. And we'll see how much of a plug and play uh, 
or rather uh, fix a flat <laughs> Wanye Morris is to that unit when he presumably returns next week against mm-hmm. Nebraska. But uh, you, you can nitpick it all you want. At the end of the day, the Sooners had command of that game from the time that they emerged in the second half locker room, and they did not give Kent State any quarter in the second half. And they were relentless offensively and defensively. They moved the ball effectively on offense, both on the ground and via the air. They didn't surrender any points after halftime on the defensive side of the football. So was it the most impressive win I've ever seen from Oklahoma? No, not by a long shot. But you don't need to have 12 of the most impressive wins I've ever seen for the season to be considered a success. All you have to do is win. And win convincingly in games that you should win convincingly. This was a game that Oklahoma should have won convincingly, and they did. Biggest concern is okay, it probably took things a little bit longer. It took a little bit longer for things to really get clicking for Oklahoma than most folks would have liked. But the important thing is, man, they did get clicking. And that's the difference between this year's Oklahoma team and last year's Oklahoma team. In my mind, back in, I I rewinded that West Virginia game a year ago. Perfect example. The Sooners scored on their opening drive. They did not score a touchdown thereafter. And as that game progressed, kind of had the expectation there in the back of your head, right? At some point, the points are going to start flowing for Oklahoma. At some point, they're going to kick into gear, and it's just going to be an avalanche that they unleash on the Mountaineer defense. That never happened. And so right. I'd much rather have a game like you saw yesterday where they scuffle for a little while, but once they find their rhythm, they're darn near unstoppable than a game where they're stuck in neutral for all 60 minutes. No, So you brought up a good point of how everything's skewed. And I thought it was really interesting. So I went, while you were talking, I went digging a little bit over here. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see me niggling through my phone and doing some research and all that type of stuff. But two of Oklahoma's most dominant teams in the last 22 years would be 2003 and 2004, right? Most people consider them very dominant. Played for a national title. Unbeaten for the most part through the season. Won the Big 12 in 2004, lost it to K-State. Still played for the national title in both seasons. August 30th, 6 p.m. kickoff. Norman, Oklahoma. Oklahoma plays North Texas. You want to know what the final score of that game was? What was the final score of that game? 37-3. to Very similar. And I was at the game, so I remember that it had a very... Same feeling, uh, struggled in the first half. Oklahoma came out in the second half, bam. They did what they needed to do. Um, Jason White was really proficient that game as well. Dylan Gabriel was very proficient last night. Even when they were struggling, he was when he had time and he wasn't getting sacked, he was hitting players exactly where they needed to be and doing what they needed to do, except for get a first down. I mean, outside of that, they didn't hit a first down. They had four of the seven first half first downs were on that final drive. The second game of that season, 
played at Alabama. An Alabama team, mind you, that I think went four and eight or four and seven or something. This is back when they played 11 games in the season uh, and not 12. They won 20 to 13. 20 to 13. So uh, I guess my point is, um, and by the way, against North Texas, the first quarter was where they struggled because they were only up 10 nothing at the end of the first quarter. And I remember Oklahoma could not move the ball. It was the second quarter on Oklahoma pretty much dominated that ball game. But against North Texas, the opening game. They went on to beat North Texas 28-13 to that year. Texas 12-0. Kansas State 31-21. Oklahoma State 38-35. Texas A&M 42-35. Like, again, like... I guess my point is, and remember, they had to, Mark Bradley had to catch a pass late in the fourth quarter to win that ball game against Texas. My point is, is that even during some of the most dominant, we consider some of the most dominant teams of all time, there's always strain. There's always things that those programs, those teams need to go through to get to that end point to where they're going to be considered one of the most dominant teams of all time in Oklahoma history. And that's because you can't, you can't do that without strain. You can't do that without ups and downs during this day. It can't happen. 2004 Bowling Green opening, opening game of the season. Urban Myers, the head coach at Bowling Green at that time was at the game. Adrian Peterson's first ball game. They didn't hand the ball to Adrian Peterson very much. He ends up with a hundred yards in the second half because they finally started giving the ball and not Keywan Jones. Oklahoma wins 40 to 24. That's not a dominant performance for the number one team in the country. They beat Oregon 31-7. Texas Tech 28-13. Like, this is just, I, I you see my point, right? Like, it's Yeah, just, I do. And no, you're, you're spot on. And I'll add this. What you still can't expect, and I know we've talked about it before, but it bears repeating, you can't expect that eight months after the advent of an entirely new coaching staff, the implementation of a new system on both offense and defense, that the Sooners are going to have everything figured out within the first two games. Non-conference play for every single team is about working out the kinks, taking what you've done in the offseason, applying it onto the field, and figuring out where you need to plug some holes and shore things up, whether that's in terms of personnel or scheme, execution, whatever the case may be. So I'm not entirely shocked that Oklahoma didn't beat either UTEP or Kent State 77 to nothing. Mm. That was my, never my expectation for either of those football games. My expectation, and I think we're beginning to see it even through eight quarters of football from the Sooners, is that you see a continual progression to the point where by the time you hit conference play on September 24th, you're starting to really feel it as a program, both offensively and defensively. And Nebraska is going to present a challenge this coming week. We will talk about this quite a bit, uh, especially on our pregame podcast later in the week. But especially now that Scott Frost is out the door and that fan base has a collective weight lifted off their shoulders, 
it's going to be a rowdy environment. And it's a football team that maybe for the first time in a while actually has some motivation to go and win because they're being motivated from the top. So it'll be a tougher draw for OU against this Nebraska team. As bad as they've been, it's going to be a tougher draw than it was against UTEP or Kent State. Again, more than anything else, though, this game is about continuing to work out the flaws that you have in terms of personnel Mm -hmm. and in terms of scheme and being able to correct those things so that you're firing on all cylinders once you play a team like a Texas, a Baylor, and Oklahoma State. Right. No, hey, look, here's the thing is I think this team improves mightily each and every week, and I think you're going to see it again because we haven't seen any crazy elaborate blitzes or anything that Brent Venables is going to throw at Casey Thompson. They're going to throw everything in the bookshelf at Casey Thompson because he's a good quarterback. I mean, people want to sit there and act like he's not a, a – they want to say, oh, he's just average, whatever. He's not the reason why they're losing. He's, he did his job yesterday. He wasn't the reason why Texas lost last year. Casey Thompson threw for, what, 3,500 yards last year? Like, how do you throw for 3,500 yards and be the reason why you're losing a ball game? And yeah, how many but, touchdowns do you have? And not to get on another uh, – Well, I, you you know what I'm saying. Like, it, yeah. they're, they're going to have to because if he if they don't do something to, to disguise things, he's going to torch them. He yeah, can throw no, better I, than any quarterback they've been up against so far. Yeah, and I don't want to get too far off track with the Casey Thompson discourse, but putting up 42 points against Georgia Southern should win you a football game. It should. Yeah. So. But, yeah. <clears throat> Anyways, but yesterday I, I did a pregame note where I talked about just inside information. Kind of I, – I, I piggybacked off your blue uh, comment and uh, – Kind of went with old school and Al Capone. His name is Blue Capone, by the way. Six three hundred eighty pound def- Capone Blue. Sorry, it, and he is. I played off Al Capone. I played off you're my boy Blue. Old school, interesting. But I, I was watching, doing a little bit of digging on him. Good, good football player. Uh, but I also broke down notes of Justin Harrington playing more, which he did. Uh. Got to see Javante Barnes more, which I said you were going to get to see this week. It happened. And I also predicted that Marvin Mims would have a massive day. And I went down through the stats, bro. And literally predicted Danny Stutzman to lead the team in tackles. Have a sack, two pass deflections, and three tackles for losses. Now, I don't know exactly what his stats were. I'm looking it up right now. But he led the team in tackles with 12. He had four tackles for losses. He didn't have a pass breakup, even though I predicted two. And he had a sack. Um, Obviously, we all know what Marvin Mims did. Marvin Mims had... Seven receptions, 163 yards, two touchdowns. He tied his record for touchdowns, which is two. But he had the most receptions he's ever had and the most yards he's ever had in a Sooner uniform. 
huge, huge day for Marvin Mims. Uh, I think he's got 250 plus receiving yards in two ball games this year, which is a good start for him. Uh, he's on pace to do a lot of good things. So those are the obvious standouts from yesterday. If you wanted to look at it from just a surface level, right? Like easy to say those two guys were the best players on the field yesterday for Oklahoma. Outside of those two, Parker, who would be your players of the game? Because I would venture to say Billy Bowman's got to be up there. And offensively, I would say maybe. I mean, Dylan Gabriel has obviously got to be one of the picks, but it's hard to pick the other guy offensively outside of Marvin Mims, right? And Dylan Gabriel? Marcus Major. 38 yards. Give it up to that dude. Yeah. yeah he, had a, he had a couple of real nice runs, and he didn't touch the football yeah, that, a whole heck of a yeah. lot. But. True. Uh, he, he he showed me something with the carries that he did get. And yeah, that that step, that side step that he did was unbelievable for the touchdown. My gosh. Yeah. Obviously, Mims carried the majority of the water for Oklahoma offensively. But mm-hmm. I think if he did emerge impressed with one of those backs last night, that's no knock on what Eric Gray or Javante Barnes did. But Marcus Major probably had the most impressive moments of any of those three running backs. Gray did have a nice run. He broke one. Uh, Barnes has got such burst, man. He's going to be a fun, fun player in years to come. But what I saw from Major really gave me some confidence that maybe this is the year he ends up putting it all together. Maybe this is the year that he really contends for the bulk of those touches in the backfield. And I get we're two games in. A lot can change. A lot can change. But... He he seems to be trending in the right direction in terms of what he's doing in practice throughout the week and in terms of what he's accomplishing uh, on Saturdays, at least over the first couple games of the season. Yeah, uh, I like I like Marvin Mims. I like uh, Javante Barnes. Eric Gray did really well. I thought Drake Stoops had some nice plays when given a chance. He got a play earlier in the ball game, and then obviously. That touchdown run was fantastic uh, on the uh, little swing pass that they did for him out in the flat. But I'll go Dylan Gabriel. I thought his command, I thought his level-headedness, not letting the offense get too too rattled in what he's going to do. If you hear clapping in the background, I apologize. My wife and kids are cheering on Baker. uh, Do not hear clapping. You're good. Okay. <laughs> so but uh, by the yeah, way, no, by the way, I thought, go ahead. No, I just want to bring this up and we can dive into it later on, but I just wanted to give you a heads up because it literally just broke per our national writer at 24 seven sports, uh, Chris Hummer. Quinn Ewers is expected to miss four to six weeks with that shoulder injury. So that puts his status for the Red River showdown very much in question because we are four weeks yeah. away. It's more than four weeks. It's less than four weeks, isn't it? Because we're no four weeks from yesterday. Oh, eleventh. Oh my gosh. Why do I keep thinking we're in like the fifteenth or sixteenth of September, dude? Man, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, that is that. There's no way he comes back from that, right? Like, does do they know exactly what it is? I know it's a sprain, but like, what grade? It has not been. 
Now, it has not been disclosed publicly, I don't think, but four to six weeks, which means if he blows the recovery timetable out of the water, he maybe plays October 8th at the Cotton Bowl. It would have to be ginger. I mean, that would be rough against a Venable's defense. So if you get hit, remember, this is exactly what happened. You said it. I said it yesterday or yesterday, the Bradford deal. Remember, he came back for Texas, ended up having to leave. Because he came back too early, blew the recovery timetable out, and ended up re-injuring it to where he had to have surgery. That's not how I would want to go. Eerie. Eerie similarities. Very eerie. Yep. And they have a similar, like, low throwing where they throw it down next to their shoulder instead of out and up the way that most quarterbacks do, a little high release. Theirs is more of a sidearm release because that's how Bradford throws. They have very similar throwing uh, styles as well. Just Bradford's more clean cut and not a mullet guy. He also wasn't driving an Aston Martin uh, in college or being. As far as you know. <laughs> yeah. No, I know he wasn't. I know he's him and his dad. <laughs> his dad still runs the, uh, the satellite uh, little league gym up in a. Uh, north side of town that my my uh, kids play little league basketball and so i talk to ken all the time when i'm up there uh but yeah man this 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 team uh defensively for oklahoma i thought and i still think is just on an upward trajectory they keep getting better and better their tackling wasn't as sound as you would like in the first half. That is a given. But yet they still held them to three points. It was almost like when they got to past the 50-yard line, they just tightened up real tight, and Kent State couldn't move the ball. They moved the ball between the 20 and the 50 on the negative side of the field, which is if Kent State, you would call it the Kent State side of the field. When they got in the Oklahoma side of the field, there was no budge going on for OU. That defense clamped down, and they were doing their job, whether it was Billy Bowman, whether it was Reggie Grimes. Jalen Redman was a force in the middle yesterday. I thought he was dominant in the middle, played his best ball game so far that I've seen dating back to last year in a while. So I don't know. I like what this team's doing. I just want to see more Jaron Kanak or Kanak. I want to see him more and more. If we could see more Canic, because when he's in there, even in mop-up duty yesterday, you kept hearing Jaron Canick on the tackle, Jaron Canick on the tackle. And when you go back and you rewatch it, that dude flies everywhere. I get that they're trying to slowly work him in, but at some point you've got to have him ready because heaven forbid, knock on wood, that one of those two guys goes down, he's it for you. He's going to be the guy that you have to lean on to come in and play that, or you're going to have to move Deshaun White down and Justin Harrington back to be the sole guy at the cheetah position, which we'll get into Justin Harrington here in a minute because I thought he played really well. He gets confused out there. I don't know if you noticed that. Like I've been reporting for a while mentally, just trying to process things. You can see him. They're like lining him up where he needs to be, the other players are because he's getting confused with the personnel that Kent State was running in. Did you notice that on the field? You probably can't because you're a lower level, but I could see it up above a lot. No, no, no. I could. I, it's, it, it didn't seem like he was the only one, though. And it didn't 
honestly, it didn't seem like it, uh, what stood out. Deshaun to me, White, I, yeah, Deshaun White got lost a couple times too. Yeah, and it, well, and I want to emphasize this though. It seems like there's a lot more pre-snap communication happening between members of the defense than there yes. ever has been in years past, and that's a really encouraging thing because mm-hmm. that means one guy gets lost, he's not going to stay lost. He's going to have guys to point him in the right direction. And so, you know, you see all this frantic pointing and gesturing from Danny Stutzman and David Aguebu in particular at the middle of it all. And I, again, it's one of those things that to the casual observer might seem insignificant, but when you've watched every play of every game for this team at field level, the way I have the last couple of years, it really does jump out at you the stark Mm. discrepancy between how much is going on in terms of communication prior to the snap here in 2022 under the direction of Brent Venables than under the previous defensive regime. So again, I, I don't know how much that means in the grand scheme of things. And it's about execution more so than anything else at the Mm. end of the day. But I do like, I like that. I like yeah. seeing that. I like seeing how engaged everybody is with what's going on and how immediately they're able to recognize things, adjust on the fly, and communicate that with each other. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, so another topic of conversation lately has been the crowd, the student section. And after everything that I said this past week, Parker, after the UTEP game, I'll bow down to the students. They heard the criticism, they stuck it out, and they were loud. The atmosphere Saturday night... There were people griping that weren't at the game, like, oh, the crowd sounds like it's awful, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, no, the crowd was loud the whole time. The whole game. They did a great job, and when the LED lights came out, that place started rocking from that point on. It was just electric at that point. So if Oklahoma can start getting more night games, that's going to change the whole dynamic, I think, of the the home atmosphere and the home field advantage for Oklahoma moving forward. You were on the field. What what, what was your feeling like? Cause I, I only have the aerial perspective from the press box. No, it was awesome. It was electric. And the addition of the new led lights goes a long way in that regard, but no, that big shout out to the student section and really the entire attendance base everybody that showed up to that game stayed for the vast majority of it. And not only did they stay, but they made noise. They made a whole bunch of noise. If I were a recruit sitting down close to the field and watching all that unfold, particularly in the second half, I'm leaving with a pretty strong impression of the Oklahoma fan base and just how passionate these folks are. 
stark contrast the week prior. And to a certain extent, that's to be expected because it was a lot cooler. It was a night game. You had the introduction of the lights to look forward to. But uh, night and day different from the season opener. Really, really encouraging in that capacity for Oklahoma. Lost your mic there, Brandon. Yep, no doubt. We brought up recruits, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about that portion of the weekend because Oklahoma hosted, officially hosted Jordan Renaud, the four-star defensive lineman from Tyler Legacy. I talked to him Friday night. Look, it's been trending Bama. I think Oklahoma's made up some ground on the official visit. They feel pretty good about it, but they don't feel like it's sold. They still think it's going to be a battle. I fully expect Oklahoma to be at his game this Friday to try to get into that and chop in a little bit more of uh, whatever ground Alabama may have. So we'll see where things stand uh, moving forward there. Uh, I, I, I don't know. This thing has a lot of Colton Vasek vibes when Oregon was a trending team heading into that visit, Oklahoma's visit for the party in the palace, Oklahoma was able to sway that. It has a lot of the Anthony Evans where Georgia was trending there and Oklahoma was able to push that one off as well. We'll see. We'll see if Oklahoma was able to sell everything that they needed to sell moving forward. And that was culture. That was development. That was the grind, the weight room, the strength and conditioning program, everything he wants and he's looking for as far as development goes. Because that's what Renaud's looking for. Doesn't care about NIL, doesn't care about any of that stuff. He's looking for development and development only. I think Oklahoma obviously hosted five-star defensive back Peyton Bowen. I had to pause the podcast because he called. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's that's kind of how we switched up topics to the LED light. We totally forgot about what we were talking about there. We'll we'll be honest. We'll admit it. Like because I was on the phone with him and a couple of sources before we had to get back on here and finish recording. So uh, yeah, the, I think Oklahoma's making up ground there. Parker, you heard the conversation. I had it on speaker where Parker could hear and. Things are moving in the right direction for Oklahoma. Let's just put it like that. And they've been moving in the right direction. NIL and Texas A&M, that's, that's the key. If, if NIL wasn't involved, Peyton Bowen's a Sooner already. He is. He's a Sooner. So uh, as far as that goes, I mean, they hosted. We'll have more. We'll have more on that, actually on OU Insider VIP because there's a lot more to that conversation that I can't get into on here that I'll quietly dive in a little bit uh, on OU Insider VIP because a lot of it I can't dive into, period, because it was off-the-record stuff. But um, there's a vast majority of it I can talk and talk about that Oklahoma fans are going to like and or they may not like. We'll see. Go to OU Insider VIP. You'll, you'll get the the nooks and crannies of that that recruitment. It's another five-star Oklahoma's in on, folks. Uh, teammate of Jackson Arnold. Four-star defensive back Ryan Yates also is in town. That one 
on the other hand, seems to be working in Oklahoma's favor more so than not. So, uh, but I'll have more on that on OU Insider VIP. This is a post game podcast. Uh, we're going to talk more so about that. Uh, we're also going to get into more questions here from our VIP members. We're going to do a quick Q&A section as well before we finish this podcast up. But Parker, recruit-wise, I know you haven't gotten to dig with a lot of players since then. I, I have a little bit just through sources and the players, the recruits actually calling me uh, while we're on the podcast. But what's been your overall gauge of how things are trending, how things are looking? And ultimately, I guess we, we'd we be remiss if we didn't talk about Mr. Uh, Malachi Coleman, four-star athlete, top 100 player out of Nebraska since uh, Scott Frost was fired. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I, I do have to make some phone calls after we get off the air in this installment of the Under the Visor post-game podcast. So uh, stay tuned. I already have some recruiting notes that I've had in the chamber for a minute to drop on OU Insider either later today or tomorrow. Uh, obviously, post-game coverage is a bear these days, so I'm kind of drinking from a fire hose mm-hmm. trying to keep up. But uh, obviously, I think... Brent Venables fire hose? <laughs> no, no, not a Brent Venables fire hose. Um <laughs> I think it's going to be very interesting over the last week or so to see where this thing swings with Jordan or not, because you, you made the perfect analogy, Brandon feels like a Colton Vosick, Anthony Evans type of situation where maybe he favors Alabama a little bit, but because Oklahoma gets the last word that ultimately makes a strong enough impression that he's a sooner in the end. So I will be curious to see what the next few days hold Uh, in that process and regarding Malachi Coleman, this is interesting to me, very interesting because, and obviously Nebraska did not make any decisions based on the acquisition, potential acquisition of a single recruit, but they made exactly the right move. If they want to still have a leg to stand on in the Malachi Coleman recruitment, which is you promote Mickey Joseph to interim head coach because Mickey Joseph Mm -hmm is the reason why Nebraska is still in the running for Malachi Coleman. You read any quote he has ever given about his top schools, he'll tell you the exact same thing. It's that he would not still be considering Nebraska if not for Mickey Joseph. So this all comes at an interesting juncture, doesn't it? Because the Sooners go to Lincoln six days from now. You would have to figure almost by default that that team is going to be more motivated than they have been all season because they no longer have a guy at the helm who is mentally checked out. And that's what Scott Frost was. He looked like he didn't want to be there anymore. Now, with Mickey Joseph at the helm, what's going to become paramount for Nebraska is that they turn this thing around and turn it around in a hurry. And that starts this Saturday. I'm not saying they need to beat Oklahoma. If they want to get yeah. Malachi Coleman, they probably do have to beat Oklahoma. But um, if they want, if they want to reverse the course of their season, be able to string something together to prove that, hey, we can, um, we can go out on the open market, pursue coaches, and convince them that this is still an attractive job opportunity. 
if they want to be able to have that corner of the pitch locked down, they're going to have to win some games here down the stretch under Mickey Joseph. Mm -hmm. I think what's going to be interesting to me is assuming Oklahoma goes to Lincoln on Saturday and wins, I will continue to favor Oklahoma and and in in fact, favor them much more heavily uh, should they go and take care of business. But with Joseph as the interim head coach, this leaves the door open for maybe maybe a situation in which he becomes the permanent guy at Nebraska. Yeah. And look, I don't think that'll happen. Gut check, I don't. But I would think that with as respected as Joseph is and how much money Nebraska doled out this past offseason to bring him in, they will probably make it a point to keep Mickey Joseph on staff. And I think assigning him the interim title is the first step in that direction. Making sure that regardless of what the future holds for your football program, he is a part of it and he knows that he is valued and that you want him to be a part of that. So I don't think Oklahoma is out of the woods yet. I still think they're in the best position because at this point, Coleman's arguably just as tight with Joe John Finley as he is with Mickey Joseph. Mm -hmm. But you got to look at track record and what Mickey Joseph has done over his coaching career. And it's not a knock on Joe John Finley. He's just, he's newer to the game as a coach. So he does not have as extensive a resume as Mickey Joseph. And the resume is one thing that Coleman is mindful of. And so as he looks at the situation and whatever the new era of Nebraska football does bring, if Mickey Joseph is a part of it and there is reason for legitimate belief that Nebraska could get this thing turned around, the Huskers may not be dead in the water in the Coleman recruitment. So I think the next couple of weeks will be very, very telling. Obviously the outcome of that game on Saturday is going to be crucial as well, but I, it's weird to say this, but I almost think firing Scott Frost when they did almost increases Nebraska's chances of getting Malachi Coleman, not substantially. And I don't want to make it seem like that's the case, but I think if you'd waited to fire him until October, if you'd waited till after the Indiana game, then at that point, Coleman's probably close enough to the finish line that he's just ready to lock in with somebody. And at that point, whoever he's ready to lock in with is not going to be Nebraska. So Nebraska preserved their chances by making this move in my eyes. Is it enough? I don't know. But I think we will find out a lot on Saturday, not just with regard to the outcome as to who wins between Oklahoma and Nebraska, but really how Nebraska responds to Mickey Joseph, Uh how they rally in the face of adversity, in the face of the firing of their former head coach, and whether or not Joseph is or proves to be a guy that they can get behind. Yeah, see, I think that that place is going to be rocking because Nebraska is up with their backs up against the wall. Mickey Joseph, Scott Frost, doesn't matter who the head coach was. Their backs up are against the wall. Now, I think that the the reigning thought is that 
Nebraska was probably going to fold like a lawn chair if Scott Frost was still the head coach. And that's why they made the move because they're trying to salvage the season, obviously at this point, like starting out one and three, because you lose to the number six or five or whatever Oklahoma's ranked at that point team in the country. That's fine. That's fine. But if they, I don't know who they have after Oklahoma. I haven't looked at their schedule completely. I'm sure maybe you have, I haven't dug that far, but if you think about it, it's just – if you think about it, like they could literally go one and four if they had Scott Frost. Maybe now they're two and three if they lose to Oklahoma and win the next game, right? Like that's where Trev Albert's head is at right now. Like, okay, two and three is more salvageable than – one and four. That's easy. That you could you could go on an eight game win streak and go nine and three, or you could go seven and one and be eight and four at the end of the season, or something to that extent if you could salvage it. Or maybe you're seven and five because you go six and two. I mean, I don't know. I'm just throwing those that stuff out there. But if they can be bowl eligible, that's what they're looking for. That's what they want. And at that point, you feel like things are trending in the right direction. And maybe you hire Mickey Joseph as a long-term coach at that point. Now, knowing when Nebraska has who they have to play and, you know, who what's left on Nebraska's schedule, and I'm looking that up right now, um, as I try to talk, talk you all through this, they have Indiana following Oklahoma. Uh, so you would think – Maybe they're two and three after that. Maybe they're three and three because they have Rutgers after that. Then they have to go to Purdue. They play Illinois, Minnesota, Michigan, Nebraska, or excuse me, Wisconsin, Iowa. So there's there's their schedule isn't that tough, Tim, because you would think they would be Iowa team with no offense. Like just literally no offense. But Nebraska's defense is a sieve right now. So unless they fix that within the next seven days, uh, Oklahoma could just lay it on them pretty good offensively. I, I don't know, man. I Like, I'm looking through here. They have a chance to salvage the season when you look at their schedule. When you've got Indiana at home, Rutgers on the road, Purdue on the road, then you're at home for ne- Illinois, Minnesota. You go to the big house in Michigan. That's not going to be easy. And then you've got Wisconsin at home and Nebraska, or excuse me, Iowa, right across the border. I mean, those are that's a salvageable season, and that's why they made the move now. So, if I gave you the percentage, does Mickey Joseph become the long-term head coach at the end of the year? Percentages, like what would you pick? 20 percent i agree uh, look because i i think there's always the chance and we've seen it before right i think back to ed orgeron at usc as a prime example or i'm sorry on. not at you not uh, lsu he might have done it at usc and lsu he had interim stints mm-hmm. at both places and was very impressive both times but ed orgeron was an example of a guy 
that as soon as he got that interim title, man, the team took off and they responded to him and they turned things around. They reversed their fortunes. If that happens for Nebraska, there's a chance Mickey Joseph gets retained. There's a chance they just remove the interim label and he's your guy. But as I look at that schedule, Grant, I think you are kind of underselling it a bit. That's especially for the type of ball Nebraska's playing right now, man. It is going to be tough for them to turn this thing around to the point where they can become bowl eligible looking at the mm-hmm. remainder of that schedule. Uh, it feels weird to say that Georgia Southern win was one they needed to have to get to a bowl game, but that's kind of what it feels like at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think just knowing the way Nebraska operates, man, and knowing the general, having a decently reliable beat on the pulse of uh, that fan base right now. And just everybody up there in that state, because Nebraska football belongs to the state of Nebraska. It is a state sanctioned entity, more or less. Um, I believe Nebraska is going to go for a more splashy hire. I don't think that's what they should do. I think if Mickey Joseph pans out, you go with him. If not, I'm looking down I-35 at Lance Leipold, man, and what he's done at Kansas. That's a guy with familiarity. He coached at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, which doesn't even field a football program anymore. But back when they did, he he was the head coach there for years and years and years. So he knows the territory. He's 58, he so He's old. He's old, yes. Older. Um, <laughs> Sorry, 58 but- people and older that are listening to this you're older not not old but you look at what he's done at kansas and i know it's a small sample size right now but that team looks like a team that can go win some football games in 2022 against non-fcs opponents which is more than we can say for kansas for the last decade plus all right so when you think about a guy that has the capacity to engineer a dramatic turnaround, which is what Nebraska needs at this point, man, there's no sugar coating it. This is as low as that program's ever been. They need somebody to engineer a drastic, drastic turnaround. You have to look at somebody that is going to know what he's doing and is not going to be. And this is kind of why I would stray away from a first time head coach thing, unless it's Mickey Joseph unless this team rips off a run of six or seven straight wins behind this guy and they rally around him. But you really got to look for a head coach with some experience to me. And I think Matt Campbell makes a lot of sense on paper. I don't know that he's going to be eager to leave Iowa state. Uh, There's been some buzz that maybe Bill O'Brien is a guy that they look at. That's not the most far-fetched possibility. Definitely not a sexy hire, but Nebraska tried the sexy hire in 2018 and see where it got him. So I don't think that's going to be a whole, uh, I don't think that's going to make up a significant component of the decision-making process. At least it shouldn't. I feel like Nebraska is going to go with somebody that has a name that carries some weight. And I don't know exactly who that is. I don't know that we have an answer for at least a month or two at the earliest because it's september 11th today heck it may be closer to three months before we know who the next head coach in nebraska is but yeah my intuition would lead me to believe uh, that they're going to go with somebody that a has been a head coach before 
which to me, that's the right move all the way. And B, you got to look at somebody whose name means something to 16 and 17 year olds, because you're going to be able to have to recruit. You're going to have to be able to recruit, excuse me. And quite simply with where Nebraska is at as a program, they're not going to be able to recruit effectively unless their head coach is a name that folks know. So I'm trying to think of guys that would be a good hire for Nebraska as far as where things stand in today's world. Um, I guess is it Josh Gaddy, I think, would be a good one. Uh, Miami's OC, right? Yes. Um, I think he would be a good hire. I think he could recruit really, really well. Um, what about Mark Stoops? I think that would be a great hire. He would I mean, fit he just... that gritty northern. I mean, he would he would he would be able to recruit because of where he's originally from, and and he fits the northern, you know, lifestyle. Correct. No, I like so, that. I think that's a good. That's that's a candidate that should certainly get an interview. I would figure because with as long as he's been at Kentucky, as much mm-hmm. success as he has had there, he's probably due for an upgrade in terms of. And look, if I'm him, I'm not leaving Kentucky because I have all the job security in the world there. It's not a right. football school, and so as long as you keep winning eight nine games. Oh, he, he he took offense to that statement not too long ago and said it's a football school. I know he did, but he's not going to come after me the way that he did John Calipari. Fair. More, <laughs> mostly because I'm not employed by the University of Kentucky. So, um, the way I see it, no, football is always secondary at a place like Kentucky. As long as you can consistently put up winning seasons there, you are going to have total job security and you're going to keep uh, the administration is going to keep cutting you big checks. So Mark Stoops yeah. has kind of got to made it Kentucky. I don't know if I make that move if I'm him, but uh, for a guy that could be in the market for his last head coaching job, it certainly holds some appeal. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Um, what about trying to think of somebody else that's just like an up and comer. That would actually fit. You know, he would fit that, and it, he's at Oregon now. Dan Lanning would have been a good good hire there. Would have been a great hire there. Kansas City guy, Missouri guy, kind of that region guy. He would have fit that perfectly for them. Perfectly. So would, uh, oh, my gosh. uh Oh, gosh, dang it. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, trying to think School. of the guy's name. Uh, Kansas State's head coach. Chris Kleiman. Chris Kleiman. That's what I was thinking of. Chris Kleiman would be a good hire, too. I mean, there's a lot of good hires out there they could go after that fit Nebraska. Like the guys we just named, they fit Nebraska. Now, recruiting-wise, I think Mark Stoops. I think Josh Gaddy. I think those would be your two best hires. Maybe Lane Kiffin. I think Lane Kiffin would be a good fit there. He would be interesting at Nebraska. 
they're going for you can't recruit because you can't recruit crazily good at at Nebraska like from a high school standpoint but transfers in the way he goes about the transfer portal at Ole Miss because I think it's very similar to Nebraska in that Ole Miss is not going to be like a, a great destination unless you're doing <laughs> you know what other coaches previously have done and that's pay to get players there at Ole Miss right and they got busted for it they did things they shouldn't have done and they got busted for it over and over like Ole Miss has been on probation I don't know how many times for this already but Lane Kiffin figured it out I'm not going to win any recruiting titles at Ole Miss so I'm going to go get the transfer portal. I think Nebraska is very similar to that. It's not Tom Osborne's time anymore. They aren't that alluring name that they once were in the college football realm. They just aren't. So why not go through the transfer portal, get a guy like Elaine Kiffin, who I think would shake some trees to, but he would be a fascinating hire I think the donors would be behind him because of just how outgoing he is. And he fits just kind of the brashness that Nebraska is as a program anyways. Historically, pretty brash. Like Bob Devaney wasn't exactly the most quiet person in the world. He liked to talk a little bit. Tom Osborne was more even kill. But, I mean, you look Frank Solich even kill. But when you look at a couple of the other hires, like Bo Pelini, Bo Pelini was brash and they won. They won with Bo Pelini. Bill Callahan liked to talk. Like those type of, it, it fits Nebraska's allure, right? Like why not go get Elaine Kiffin? You're from Nebraska. Do you think he would fit? Lane Kiffin? No, I do not. You don't? I don't think. I don't think Lane. I Kiffin think he fits recruiting I also, wise. I think he, building a roster. I think he would be great. I also how he think would go about it. That job is a step down for him. A significant step down from where he's at right now at Ole Miss. From Ole Miss. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. Now again, I just don't see Ole Miss as the perennial winner. Just don't. I can't ever get my head around that. Well, right now they're a perennial bowl team, which is significantly more than you can say for Nebraska. <laughs> Right, um, but I mean, historically, when you when you put the tiers of college football programs out there, you do not put Ole Miss in the same tier as Nebraska. Sure. Um, look, I I I knew the Scott Frost era was doomed, and I kind of already knew. We all kind of already knew this, but I remember the spring of twenty twenty one when it really hit me that oh, this is going to end in real ugly fashion. I was talking to a high school coach up in the Omaha area, and he said, "Look, I have two of my players." on the Nebraska roster right now. I have another player on my roster that they are quote-unquote recruiting. I haven't gotten a phone call from anybody on that staff in over a year. Right. And that sums up all of the chronic issues that plagued Nebraska during Scott Frost's tenure. Is it, Look, you are not going to win at Nebraska unless you win Nebraska, the state. That's always been where the Huskers' nucleus has been in terms of their recruiting base, in terms of their identity. And so to hear something like that 
come out of the mouth of a guy who's, like I said, had multiple players on Nebraska's roster and had mm-hmm. multiple others that Nebraska was either pursuing or on the verge of going and pursuing. I, it, it was hard for me to fathom because that ought to be the easiest thing in the world to do as a head football coach at the University of Nebraska, and especially being a Nebraska guy as Scott Frost was. It just didn't make right. sense that he de-emphasized the importance of in-state recruiting and maintenance of relationships the way that he did. To me, at Nebraska, for where that program is right now, you have to have a defensive-minded coach that can recruit. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of guys fit that bill. A lot of guys do. For me, like I said, I think the best fit is Lance Leipold because he knows the territory. He's already engineered the beginnings of a turnaround at Kansas. His players love playing for him, man. They love mm-hmm. him, and he's intense. He'll get after him, but they love that challenge. He uh, honestly, I, I, so I was up at a game between Platte County and North Kansas City in the KC area this weekend, uh, this past Friday, excuse me. And I noticed on the sideline there was a player that I'd gotten to know over the course of his recruiting process over the last couple of years, uh, that had committed and enrolled at Kansas. And so he right. was going through he's going through fall camp for the first time with the team. And so I'm chatting him up about KU football and his experience there. And one of the things he told me was, look, Leipold will let you have it. I mean, he will rip you if you do something the wrong way. He said, I, I wasn't holding the ball tight enough to my body one day and routes on air. And he chewed me out. He said, look, like that's that's what you have to have if you want to change the culture in a place like Kansas. And he's doing it. That's mm-hmm. what the, this player told me. He's doing it. Like people are excited about the future of Kansas football. People believe this team can go and compete and win football games in 2022. And you're already seeing that. So to me, it's and the, the way that player continued to describe Lance Leipold to me, it honestly gave me some Bo Pelini vibes. I don't think Lance Leipold is quite the outright hothead that Bo Pelini was, but I think he's got that that same kind of brash, competitive fire that Pelini brought to Nebraska as their head coach, as their defensive coordinator and later head coach. And they won under Pelini. Now, they, right. didn't, they didn't win championships. And I think because Nebraska fans were spoiled by those three titles in the mid nineties, they thought, well, if we're not winning championships, we need to upgrade because that's where we need. That's what we need to get back to. But you you throw the baby out with the bathwater and this is what happens. I end up year eight now post Pelini and you just lost at home to Georgia Southern. So maybe it's time to re embrace some of the same philosophies and portions of the same model that you employed while Pelini was head coach to be able to get your program back to the point where they're winning nine, 10 games a year, because you're not going to have an over overnight turnaround. You're not with where that program is right now. You are not going to build Rome in a day. You are not all of a sudden in year two or three going to win 12, 13 games and be competing for a national title. You're going to have to take baby steps. 
And baby step number one is just getting this team back to perennial bowl eligibility. Yeah, so I get it. I know you're sold on you know Lance Leipold. So Pete Thamel threw out some names. Lance Leipold was one of them. Mark Stoops was one of them that I named earlier. And I kind of agree with him on three of the, uh, Chris Kleiman was the other one I threw out that. So I agree on three more that he's thrown out that I think would be ultimate fits at Nebraska. Jim Leonard. Um, PJ Fleck. And Brett Bielema. Well, four Matt Campbell. I think those those I think those are the seven guys. If you're Nebraska, with the ones that we've already named or eight guys, uh, I think those are that's who you go after. I think it's who you go after. You have eight guys on your list. You go after those eight. You're good with one of those eight. You're going to win some games with one of those eight. They're going to be able to rebuild your program. These guys are program builders. They threw out Dave Aranda in there. I just can't see Dave Aranda leaving Baylor. Can't hear you. You, you, you muted yourself. Did I mute myself? Dang it. He's not leaving Baylor, is what I said. Yep. yep. He's Bill not O'Brien's leaving an interesting one, but I just don't know that he wants to do the college football thing as a head coach again. I think he's more looking at He's probably going to have to before he gets back to the NFL. But I think Nebraska is a big step for him right now. I think he's got to take the baby steps and take a smaller uh, program than Nebraska, in my opinion. So I don't know. All right. Before we close this this podcast out, we're going to do some Q&A uh, from the OU Insider VIPers. They have put their questions in. I'm going to randomly select three, and we're going to discuss them quickly. So first things first. Well, we've already done the impact on recruits games, so I'm going to go. This is from Sooner Traveler. Thank you for being a VIP member. Any news you may have heard on injured players would be appreciated. All right. Well, we all know our Mason Thomas was dinged up. I believe he came back in the game. If I remember correct, didn't he play like a couple of snaps afterwards? Uh, uh, I don't think he came back in the game at that point, but I, I've already reached out to some folks about uh, our Mason Thomas and his status next week. Very minor. Very minor. And yeah, I thought he just gonna... got like a – he kind of dislocated his shoulder, but it wasn't like a – or like strained it. Yeah, he's he's going to be a full go next week. That's the expectation, is that he's going to yep. be back up to speed in time for Nebraska, which with Marcus Stripling dinged up, uh, yep. I think our Mason Thomas really has a window right now to mm-hmm. – and honestly, it feels like he's already supplanted yeah, he's already ahead of Stripling. Him, yeah. But – uh, to really solidify that, he's gonna have he's gonna have the opportunity uh, to really lock himself in as the primary speed guy off the edge for Oklahoma mm. over the next couple of weeks. Javante Barnes, they pulled him out too. Uh, he looked a little wobbly <laughs> coming off the field. Did you not notice that how wobbly he was coming off the field in the second? I did half? not notice that. No. Yeah. I don't remember him taking another snap either after that because they ended up throwing um, Tawi Walker in there after that. 
So, and Tawi Walker took all the snaps and then finally Saltchuk came in uh, for, for a few snaps as well uh, later on in the fourth quarter. But I, I would assume both those, I mean, obviously we're going to do some digging around on Barnes. Um, Stripling, I want to say he he came back in after his arm was dangling around. I feel like he played because I, I I almost assuredly saw him come in on field goal or extra point. I think Stripling did come back. Yes, I believe yeah, you're correct. He came back in. I remember watching that and very like watching. So, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of injuries really. Like this has been the cleanest I can remember. Oklahoma through two games. Knock on wood for y'all as far as the, the bug goes with the injuries. Um, they've been pretty lucky so far, even through fall camp. Very lucky. Um, I would think that you're going to get Wanya Morris back this week. And I think that's a good thing. So we'll see what he does to the offensive line, letting Anton go and feel more comfortable at the left, which he played this past game. He was left tackle. Played this last game. Wanye back to the right side. I don't know how much you see of Matoir. I just can't imagine him playing much, at least starting. Kate has not been fantastic. No, he is not. He just no, hasn't. he is not. And that margin is getting smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. because Jake Taylor's been impressive. Savion Bird's been impressive. Uh, I know folks have been critical of Robert Conjol, but that's a guy that's literally been starting at the P5 level along the offensive line since 2017. So he's got as he's got as much wear on his tires as anybody. So if Matire continues to scuffle, man, yeah, it's it is hard to imagine that he will hold on to that job much longer. He's got to fix it and fix it fast. Right. There's a lot of recruiting questions in here. Uh, just a lot of recruiting questions. All right. What's your opinion on the slow start of Oklahoma yesterday? Was it just a stale start or could there be more to it? I think they switched up their blocking schemes running game because they could not run the ball with what Kansas Kent state was doing to them. And I talked to some sources and even Brent Venables came out and said they were doing some things that were kind of screwing with how they were blocking and how they had worked and prepared for it during the week. So they adjusted for it later on in the second quarter. They wanted to give it at least a quarter and a half, trying to see if they could get things in. Cause a lot of the things that they do and were doing against Kent state are things they are going to have to be proficient on at some point during the season. Cause somebody's going to try to do something different than what Kent state did to attack them. So they got to figure they have to figure out multiple ways to block for their run game and their pass game. They have to. And that's what they were working on. They went, they switched some things up, and you saw the run game open up at that point. And Jeff Levy even talked to I I asked him a question about the frustration and all that. He said, look, the same run play that Eric Gray got four yards on in the first quarter, first half, he busted for 50 in the second half. The exact same play, the exact same call, the exact same formation. They switched up their blocking scheme, opened it up even more wide, didn't allow the backside backer to scrape across 
the back end and allowed Gray not to get shoelace tackled after four yards. He was allowed to bust it to the hole wide open. So it was just adjustments, in my opinion. They had to make adjustments. They stayed calm. And Venables, to his credit, was just like, he. they didn't adjust real quick because they he wanted to see how his team was going to react to the strain. And he came out and said that. Like, I, I, I thought that's what was going to happen. And we played to that because he wanted to see his guys go through strain before they went on the road to Nebraska. They needed to have strain because the first game, there was no strain at all. Easy peasy, walked in there, took care of business. They were done. There was strain this time around. And I thought that uh, Venables thought that was important. I thought that was important. Parker, what's your thoughts on that? I think as far as the slow start, it's just it, you hit a lot of the key things there, Brandon. So I'm not going to rehash it, but I think it just comes down to the fact that, as we mentioned off the top, this team's still working out kinks, and so is everybody, and that's okay. Mm. It's week two. This is why you schedule yep. the cupcake games early in the year, right? Because yep. when you're when you're scheduling for non-conference play, you don't just want to play an average football team. You want to play a mm. team that you know you can make some mistakes against and still get away with the victories the Sooners did against UTEP and Kent State. Or, on some occasions, as you will see with Georgia next year at Owen Field, you want to play a team that will give you a real early litmus test and can be one of those days that your team has circled on the calendar all offseason. You are constantly getting them prepared for uh, and making them aware, hey, one day closer to Georgia, one day closer to the biggest test you guys are going to face in non-conference play uh, probably your entire career at Oklahoma. And so yeah. uh, you either, basically when you're scheduling non-conference games, you either want to be playing elite opponents or pushover opponents. Mm-hmm. So not really surprised that this is the way that the first two weeks have unfolded for Oklahoma. It's not perfect, but it never was going to be. And from what I saw of that team in the second half, it gives me a lot of confidence that they're going to have even more of those kinks worked out by the time they go up to Lincoln. And then by the time Kansas state comes to town on September 24th, you're going to start to see the first inklings of a well-oiled machine. Right. Yeah, I agree. There's just it's baby steps, folks, baby steps through a new staff, through a new scheme. Everything's going to be baby steps from here on out, but they're winning. And these weren't the biggest cupcakes in the world. You're talking about two bowl teams. Kent State competed for their conference title in the MAC last year, so this isn't like just walkthroughs. Like there was going to be some adversity at some point between those two games. Uh, will we see more complex defensive schemes versus Nebraska? One hundred percent, unequivocally, yes. They didn't show hardly anything. At all. During the past few, they were bland. There wasn't a lot of mixing and matching, disguising blitzes. They played a lot of quarter coverage. Not a lot of just elaborate things that Venables is known for as far as scheme and schematically that they go for as far as blitzes do. Their blitz packages were bland. Their slants were bland. Their stunts were bland. Everything was bland the last two weeks. Uh, mainly because uh, this week in particular because of what Kent State does offensively where they really try to trick your eyes with a lot of movement, motion, um, a lot of fakes, a lot of misdirection. 
And so you can't do a lot of those things uh, until you get used to that type of stuff. So this was, it was a necessity that they stayed bland. Now going into Nebraska and conference play, they're going to start opening some things up. I don't think you'll see the playbook open up wide open until potentially K-State, but 100% Texas. I think that's where you start to see, or TCU. I think those are the games you start, start to see things open wide up for the Oklahoma defense and the offense. Because as thick as that playbook is, they haven't even tapped. I bet you they probably tapped into probably 15 pages of maybe an 80-page playbook that Venables has defensively and probably 100-page Levy has offensively. So take some deep breaths on that. Just know that things are going to get more elaborate. Uh, you're going to start seeing a more wide-open base offense instead of just halfback off-tackle here, halfback off-tackle left, right. Uh, you're going to start seeing some a lot of misdirection. You're going to see some things that are going to really show how uh, – I guess open Oklahoma's offense will be and how elaborate Oklahoma's defense will be moving forward. And I muted myself. Dang it. I don't know why I keep hitting the mute button. Anyway, <laughs> regardless, my so my thoughts on this upcoming matchup against Nebraska is again, I I think this game is a lot more about what Nebraska brings to the table than Oklahoma. Yeah. Because we don't know. It's one no. giant missing variable at this point, because this could be a night and day different team that we see on Saturday from the team that we just saw lose to Georgia Southern. And that has to do with uh, the shakeup. And that has to do with how this team responds to Mickey Joseph versus how they responded or didn't respond to Scott Frost. So I'm honestly more, more curious to see what wrinkles Nebraska throws at Oklahoma than vice versa. I think it's just all the more apparent to me that Oklahoma has to maintain the aggressor mentality, the predator mentality going up to Lincoln. Because if you let Nebraska embrace that mentality and you let them become the hunter instead of the hunted, then you could be in trouble. You could. You don't want to take this one to the bank. Yeah, this Nebraska team is in dire straits, but that's the reason that they parted ways with Frost when they did. It's because they want to have a puncher's chance to win this football game. In fact, they were willing to put $7.5 million on the table in front of Scott Frost to be able to have a chance to win this football game. This was the last game Nebraska was going to play before Frost buyout dropped. They could have just let him coach this game and then fired him and saved $7.5 million. But the fact that they didn't, the fact that they moved so quickly speaks to how badly they want to compete in this football game. Yeah, no doubt. <clears throat> I agree that we, we have no idea what Nebraska is going to do <laughs> at all. I think that's going to be the biggest question. We actually, people ask that in the, the Q and a on OU inside our VIP. So uh, that answers your questions guys on that. Uh, lastly, the last one we heard during August, the OL was the best unit. What happened? Uh, no, we said the running back room was the best unit all summer and all August. At no point did we say Oklahoma's OL was, we said that they were, they should be a strength, but they haven't been healthy yet. And when we say healthy, they've missed a starter the whole time and maybe their most athletic and best tackle the whole first two games. So we'll see if that makes a big difference. We'll see if the adjustments made in the second half are what we should see the rest of the season. 
as far as the offensive line goes. But I get being frustrated with the offensive line in the first quarter and probably three quarters of the second quarter. But from the last drive of the second half, second quarter through all the way through the second half, Oklahoma's offensive line was dominant, like just dominant. So you can't just you can't just focus on the negative part and not see the positive parts as well. And I know that's a fan thing to do, and that's what fanatics do is they're going to focus on the most, I guess, extra most outlandish part of the thing. Like as bad as Oklahoma was offensively, that's not who they are, and everybody knows that. Like you all know that. But you want to focus on the negative part because the negative part is people just focus on negatives. I don't know why, but they do. They focus more negative than they do the positive. You can't scrap the whole second half and go, well, they were bad. No, they were great in the second half. Great, dominant, wide open holes the whole time. Eric Gray busted a few long runs. Marcus Major busted a like it's like a 15, 16, 17 yard touchdown run. Like that doesn't happen if the holes aren't there. They went from having like seven yards rushing. What did they end up total yards rushing? Do you remember off the top of your head? I don't remember I cannot, either. I cannot remember off the top of my head. No, but I want to say, Oh my gosh. I want to say they ended up with like, uh, they end up with 134 yards. So essentially they had 123 yards rushing in the second half. Okay. That's so it, it wasn't bad. They ended up with almost 300 yards passing 296 total is the exact total that they did. So things aren't as bad as they seem. Things aren't as good as people want them to be, but they're not as bad as some people want them to be as either. I promise you. Let's see how things change when Wanye Everybody's at the position that they worked at all fall camp, and they're not having to mix and match because people are missing. I think that's going to be the more key thing of everything. And the offensive line unit is also a mess unit. When you work with Wanye at the right tackle and the right guard, I think it's McCabe Matuire. Was he? He's the right guard, right? Not the left guard. Correct? Chris Murray's the right guard. Chris Murray, right, right guard. That's right. But when you work with people and you know the steps that they're going to take as far as and the timing that they're going to take to combo block or pull behind you or whatever they're going to do to help slide step to get over because you've got to reach across to get to cross block. I mean, it's all timing when it comes to offensive line. So when you're missing a piece and game week rolls around, during week one and you throw somebody else in there that hasn't been next to you for the first 30 days of practice. I don't care if it's two weeks, it's going to take time to mesh and figure that out because you're used to somebody else next to you. So let's see if that mesh and the unit gets better with one. If it doesn't. Okay. We'll talk about how bad the offensive line is. If they aren't better against Nebraska. Because I think Nebraska's defensive line isn't that great. I think their defense isn't that great. So if they're not doing their job against Nebraska, 
I will be right in line with you guys going, what the heck? No, I'm I, I'm with you. I don't have much to add to that, Brandon. I think this is a game that, again, Oklahoma should win just based on the talent level of this Sooners team versus the Huskers. And maybe Nebraska comes out with a little extra juice, but if you take care of business, if you do your job, and if you've learned lessons and applied them from week one and week two, this should be a football game that you go and win, even in a hostile road environment. But we'll talk a lot more about that on uh, – on our post or on our pregame podcast, excuse me, whether that yep. comes out Thursday, Friday, whatever the case may be. All right, man. Well, that's going to do it for this version of the OU Insider under the visor Sooners postgame podcast. If you're not signed up for OU Insider, we've got a bunch of more postgame pod postgame information coming for you guys. Got a lot of recruiting information with it being a big recruiting weekend as well. Our OU Insider has blown up. It's been amazing. Oklahoma fans are amazing. And we continue to hit record highs every day. It's 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 awesome. We are one of the largest 24-7 sites now. And we were like middle tier when I arrived in 2018. Like I think we were ranked like almost 50th as far as how large we are. Now we're uh one of the top five, six largest 24-7 sites that there is. And that's all because you Oklahoma Sooners fans. Uh, obviously our staff is awesome. You have myself, Parker, you have Joey, Brian Bishop, uh, just doing a lot of work and we continue. We'll, we will continually hire new people. We've got another big hire that we could be making here in the near future as far as interns goes, but we're not ready to even divulge that because we haven't crossed just the negotiation part yet, but it's in talks. So we'll see how that goes uh, moving forward. But we just have big things for you guys coming up. Lots of big things. And we can't wait to see you guys on our board. It's 30% off right now. $75 gets you one year of OU Insider. That means you'll get all 250 VIP sites on 24-7 sports. You get OU Insider. And then after the first year, after the first year, after, because I don't want this misconstrued, you get Paramount Plus for free. That means you sign up. You rehash your your membership and Paramount Plus comes for free. If you're on a promo, you don't get Paramount Plus. 30% off is a promo. So that's how that works. If you don't want to do the promo and you want to try us out, just give us a try. Come see our community is awesome. There are at least five to six, seven thousand people on our VIP board at all times talking starting threads. You can start your own thread. You can start your own conversations. You can add to the conversations and topics that we put up. You can go to other VIP sites, whether it's USC, Alabama, uh, Texas, Texas A&M, Notre Dame. Doesn't matter. You can go check out their sites. You can talk on their board until they probably ban you for being a fan of another place, but you can still read it even if you're banned. So you get all this information that you won't find anywhere else because you're part of OU Insider VIP. And if you want to just give us a try, $1 for the first month. $1 for the first month, then $9.95 afterwards. That's it. So we hope to see you guys on there. Let us know. We do ticket giveaways. We've already given away, I want to say, in the first two games, we've given away 22 tickets between UTEP and uh, Kent State. That's 11 pairs of tickets that we've given away to people. We'll have Kansas State tickets coming up later on this month. 
potentially OU Texas tickets given away. Wink, wink. So, but the only way you do that is to enter the drawings on Monday afternoons, the week of the game, and you will find out if you're going to be able to go to the Kansas State game, to the Texas game, um, maybe to the Kansas game later on that, that month in October. Baylor, Oklahoma State, we'll do giveaways for all those games most likely. And if not, we do uh, Amazon gift cards. We do gift cards to Best Buy. We do gift cards to Dick's Sporting Goods. We'll add on to your membership if that's what you want to do and you want to be added on to. It doesn't matter. But we try to make sure that you all understand how much you guys mean to us by doing giveaways each and every week uh, so that you all know that we feel blessed to be able to cover the Oklahoma Sooners for you guys each and every week, all the time, 24-7. Just like the name that uh, graces our parent company. So, anyways, all right, that's gonna do it for myself, for Parker Thune. My name is Brandon Drum. We hope you guys have a blessed day and enjoy this podcast. Thank you all so much. We will see you guys later on this week for the OU Insider Under the Visor YouTube Live, and for the podcast following that for the pregame podcast for Nebraska. You guys have a blessed day.